Jonathan, Amy, it's really a pleasure to get to hang out with both of you today. So thank you for taking the time to share your perspectives with me. Uh, I think it's appropriate that I set the stage before jumping into our conversation, primarily so that our audience has context as to why we're doing what we're doing. And my hope in doing this project is really rooted in bringing us together as a scientific community to talk through this difficult moment and really this difficult season that we're in. So I wanted to do this in the spirit of information gathering, you know, for myself and for our colleagues and in the spirit of collaboration. Uh, and this really struck me as a situation that we needed to discuss. So my desire really is to get certain stakeholders together to have conversation, hopefully with a spirit of gentleness and humility that really encourages healthy dialogue. And I, I also hope that our conversations are intellectually honest and challenging. Uh, I, I firmly believe that disagreements are inevitable within communities like ours, but I think in many ways will be defined by how we solve these problems together in these moments. So I certainly remain optimistic and uh, very excited to be able to talk with both of you. I think reading the letter that y'all wrote regarding electroshock and uh, the presentation at ABAI, which I know you never intended anyone to read besides the recipients of that letter, caused many of us to stop what we were doing. Yeah, and just sit in it. Like, really, I mean, when I read that letter, I was on my purple sofa at home and I just kept shaking my head in like disbelief, honestly. It's almost like in that moment, we all dropped anchor and thought to ourselves, wait a minute, like what's happening? And I still think that's where many of us are at, which is why I wanted to desperately kind of launch into this series of, of interviews. So from my perspective, this moment really is our choice point, right? To use an act term, hopefully appropriately. I'm, I'm like a novice act aficionado. I love it and I'm enthusiastic, but I'm still learning. So this is our choice point and in what direction are we going to move? Uh, so Jonathan and Amy, I wanna wrestle through this with you and with others. And I imagine we have numerous difficult questions uh, to ask and to answer as a community. So I really appreciate both of y'all taking the time to help me through this project. Uh, so with all that said, let's, let's get into it. Uh, in the spirit of telling the story, this might give you a journalism-like vibe. So my questions, at least initially, really involve you sharing the story behind the scenes of the events that led up to what I'm calling the letter. Uh, you're welcome to talk in as much detail as you want regarding your thoughts and perspectives, whether it's personally or professionally. I know for me, this was like deeply personal. Also, it was professional, but it was also deeply personal because of my values. So, uh, you know, I have, uh, I have other questions that I'd love to ask, but this conversation can and should take a very open uh, course, it could take whatever direction y'all want it to take, uh, but uh, I'll open it up to y'all to share and I'll ask follow-up questions. You guys, please ask follow-up questions of one another, but I'm just really excited to be able to talk to both y'all. Yeah. Well, great. It's great to be here and talk about this um, with you and John. And um, so I guess I'll lead off. I, um, I just remember uh, it was pretty informal. John, we were emailing back and forth with ABAI about some other topic. I went back and looked at that letter just to refresh myself and it was pretty informal. John, there's not even a like dear so-and-so on the letter or anything. It's just hit reply on another topic, answered that topic, and then just kind of, you know, here's this issue that's coming up for us based on all of this evidence um, and activism in the community that got our attention. Um, looking at, you know, an article by Jen Zarconi um, that she wrote in uh, to support 
a position statement um, by the International Association um, for Scientific Study of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities. She wrote that position statement and then um, opposing uh, contingent skin shock. And then uh, she wrote a paper to support that. And after reading that and looking at, you know, the scientific basis or lack thereof and reflecting on our own values, we just thought, I mean, it was almost like just a switch flipped. And I was like, I can't do this. Um, and we had had some conversations with some of the area coordinators and I had, I just felt like it, it was just something that I couldn't go through with. And so John, um, let ABA I know that's how we were feeling. And maybe John, I'll let you kind of pick up from there. Sure. Yeah. So then, uh, yeah. So we reached out to the leadership and, and we said, basically us area coordinators just kind of don't see how we can really accept, uh, submissions on shock anymore on ethical grounds. Um, unless, you know, it, it's certainly possible that, that a submission could actually include enough evidence to show that this is the only option available to save this human being's life. And then sure. I mean, if the, if the evidence is that compelling, um, uh, you know, we wouldn't just reject something out of hand. Um, but we'd look, we'd look back at, at previous presentations and submissions in previous years and, and done, done a lot of thinking and reading. And, and we were very concerned that um, given what's been submitted in the past, it was very unlikely that uh, enough evidence would be submitted with any submissions that could be incoming this year uh, that would make it ethical, clearly, or clearly establish the ethics to uh, such that we would feel comfortable and ethical with accepting them uh, for presentation in the conference. Um, so we communicated that to the leadership. Um, the executive council then met about it. Um, and they, uh, what we sort of thought we were doing was starting a conversation <laughs> with ABAI leadership about this. Um, and I'm not sure what they thought, but, but what their response was, was to discuss the topic at the executive council meeting. And the executive council decided uh, that they would um, funnel any submissions by uh, uh, organizations who do shock uh, or any submissions that talk about shock, uh, funnel them away from the 30 plus people who are in charge of peer review for submissions and instead create a special task force of four people, two of whom are basic researchers. Nothing wrong with basic science. I'm, I'm a big basic science geek, but this is a clearly an applied practice ethics issue. Um, so funnel the submissions to this uh, sort of special task force and that they would make the decision about acceptance or rejection. And so when the leadership let us know, uh, Amy and I know that this was the decision of the executive council, we immediately offered our help. We said, okay, great. We'll be on that special task force or like, let us help. We've got a bunch of people on like out of these 30 plus people in the, uh, who are do the normal peer review process. We've got all this talent here. Let, let us help. And the, the response to that was no, uh, uh, and we're not even going to tell you who they are. Um, and, and we're not going to tell you anything about the special task force um, un until they're done, basically. And so then after the task force was done, reviewing and accepting all of the submissions on shock, including a workshop, then they let everyone know or let us know uh, who was on that special task force. Um, and that was it. The decision was made. And so I think at that point... Um, Amy and I, well, we continued to express concern. Um, and then, you know, at some point it got to the point where we just felt like we can't, that we're not able to, 
Well, I'm not going to speak for you, Amy, but I, I felt like I'm not able to uh, behave ethically in this position of overseeing the people responsible for peer review. Um, I don't feel like I was able to behave ethically if we weren't even able to do our jobs. And so at that point, uh, it seemed like the only choice was to no longer do that job, to resign from that job. That definitely um, is how I felt as well. I think it was the point where we started getting um, some emails from area coordinators we had talked to previously. And um, they were basically like, uh, what's up with the shock in the program? I thought that you guys had said, you know, that that wasn't something that you felt like could be included. Could you just talk to us about that? And, and that's when we really, you know, went back and looked at our job descriptions and thought about this really carefully and felt like we hadn't been allowed to do our jobs that we say in the letter, what our job descriptions are. And, you know, they include things like handling controversial issues in the program and um, overseeing the final program and things like that. And, and we weren't able to do that. Um, one point of clarification I want to make that I don't even think I've had a chance to communicate to John is that you can tell that we didn't know anything about the task force because I've now come to understand that the submissions were reviewed by the executive council and the task force is um, tasked with a position statement and they didn't review the submissions. They sub is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, so <laughs> our big concern <laughs> is lack of transparency. And so you could see the two people who are in charge of overseeing the 30 plus people in charge of peer review for the conference um, don't even have it straight. So that's interesting. I thought yeah. the task force also was involved in the peer review process. Yeah. Okay. And the only reason that I know that is that someone on the task force reached out to me to clarify that they were not involved in reviewing the, um, the submissions. And Okay, hang on a second then. This is funny because we're just realizing something right now in this moment uh, while we're recording us talking, so that's interesting. Yeah. But uh, there could have been some miscommunication, intentional or unintentional then, from the leadership on that because I'm pretty yeah. positive that the buck was passed to the task force about peer review, but maybe not. Yeah. You're hearing from people on the task force that they did not do the peer review. Yeah. Submissions. I interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I think the, the takeaway here is that um, once John and I expressed concern about presentations that could be submitted to the program involving contingent shock, that was the last point that we felt like we had any transparent communication or um, agency in what happened after that. Yeah, and even more important than us is the 30 plus people that we worked with, that we coordinated. Who, who put in uh, so much labor to make the conference a possibility. They put in, they volunteer so much of their time to peer review and to inviting speakers and all of that stuff. All of them were circumvented. And you know, what may have been one of the most ethically important moments of their careers in terms of peer review, potentially, they weren't allowed to even uh, be aware of the submissions right. that were coming in. Yeah, that's a great point. The submissions were pulled out of the regular process. And so they're your coordinators and, and we never saw them until they basically had been inserted in the program. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, John and I talked about yesterday, we had a chance to connect and I could really I could really sense his heart for and, and where his mind was at with regards to this idea that he has responsibilities. He has he has a responsibility to to the to the to the organization, and yet he felt like he had no 
ability to influence like these decisions. And he felt like he was, you know, in a sense, he was like sidelined, which is never a great feeling, especially like you just made a great point, John, like this is one of the most ethically important moments of their careers of, 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 uh, of, uh, in, in, in the peer review process for presentations like this. So I think it's, I think it's really critical that, um, like I, I could sense that that was a, a point of tension for you, uh, rightfully so. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think what we thought was going to happen was we were going to have a conversation about it, um, and, and see where that went. Um, and that didn't happen. And we, asked to be part of the conversation and, and we weren't, we didn't literally didn't even know what was going on. And you can see now we're still trying to actually even piece together what happened. Um, and so I think there were, a, there were a lot of alternatives to what happened. Like when I looked at the, the bylaws, um, the executive council does have the authority to do what they did. Um, but they also have the authority to have done something like at a later point in the process. So if, if we carried the process through and came out with a conclusion um, that they felt like, well, ABAI doesn't have a statement on this. We don't we don't have a position. So as an organization, we can't be rejecting things on those grounds. Um, then they there were other places they could have intervened. Um, but the process wasn't allowed to carry out yeah and, and i will say you know um it's really important to note that all of the people involved in the abai leadership and all of the people on the executive council are people that we have tremendous respect for many of them are personal friends of ours that we've worked with together as colleagues for years decades even um and so we're not trying to paint a picture of like good guys and bad guys here that's not that's not the way it went down um but there were a lot of different ways it could be done. And, and one of the main um, concerns that they raised was if we reject these submissions on shock, it will imply that ABAI has an official position against shock. Um, and our reply to that was no, each submission can be peer reviewed. No, needs to be. We have an ethical responsibility to peer review each submission on its own merits. And those merits include ethics especially if they're applied presentations, the ethical merits of the submission supersede the scientific merit. I mean, if they don't, if they don't meet a minimum ethical standard, they can't be accepted, no matter how important they are scientifically. Um, and so that was our position is just let us actually peer review each individual one um, on all grounds, including ethics. Um, and it's entirely possible that we have been falling down on our ethical responsibilities for years, maybe even decades as a field, and maybe now is the time to do better. Uh, not as a knee-jerk reaction, not as some political protest, but just a, a really careful, thoughtful, ethical evaluation of each individual submission. And if they had let us do that, as Amy said, they absolutely could have still overridden us and said, no, <laughs> we're going to accept them. But they, but at least the full transparent process would have taken place. One of, one of my concerns in the present moment is that we are to an extent making like armchair analyses of certain situations. I've seen this, I've seen this criticism, right? Uh, on social media. Uh, so I want to dig into that more together with both of y'all. Like I, I want to be intellectually honest. Uh, so to what extent do we have the right as a scientific community to say that our values override the data? Like you just made a really good point, John, which is like, well, no matter what, like, 
no matter what, if we have ethical concerns, at what point are we like, can we just say like, Hey, look, we just, this, like, no matter what, this just shouldn't be a part of our, 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 uh, uh, the set of presentations that are at our conference. Like that's the, that's the tension that I feel the most right now as a behavior analyst It's like, well, yeah, the, the data are going to indicate that like electroshock is effective. Like, is that really that surprising? I don't know. Maybe it is, but like, at what point are we just like, no, we just, no matter what, we shouldn't be doing this. And I think it's reasonable to take a, a blanket uh, sort of moral position um, and that's not even what we were advocating for. I think it's also reasonable to look at each individual case, each individual submission on its own merits. And it is entirely possible that there is someone for whom it's the most, most ethical thing is to use electric shock because it's going to save their life. That's possible. I'm not saying I know every client out there with severe behavior. That would be ridiculous. Um, but I, I, I still feel that um, regardless, it, it, it just... We have to be human beings first. We have to respect human dignity first and compassion first. And if we're not sure if we're doing a good enough job of that, that's where we stop. That's where we you know, put the brakes on and say, hang on a second. We need to reassess this. We're not just going to accept something if we have serious concerns about whether it's ethical and moral. It's not a blanket statement that everything gets rejected, but some thoughtful, careful consideration. Yeah. And I think in addition, the, the thing that was surprising to me when I read Jen Zarconi's article was that, yes, electroshock is um, often effective in the moment for stopping a behavior, but it has extreme side effects, you know, emotional and behavioral side effects um, in terms of that person's relationship with others, in terms of diff all different kinds of side effects and the evidence that it's effective in the long run is poor. It's actually, there's not good scientific evidence that it's effective in the long run. And so, so when you put that together, I think that the bar that for um, aversive treatments, the ethical bar, the, the necessity bar, the scientific bar should be really high for, <clears throat> for things that are aversive and, and painful to people. And so, you know, if it's a positive reinforcement procedure and it, you know, sure, go ahead and see if it works. But if it's something like electric shock, I feel like the bar should be really high. And for me as a basic scientist reading Jen Zarconi's work, I'm just not convinced that the evidence is actually there, that it's effective in the long run. And it's like, um, I was talking to a colleague who said, you know, it's like you have this, this pill, this treatment that's really, it's effective maybe, but it also has like immense side effects and the side effects may be for the person, but <clears throat> to kind of raise the broader issue here, maybe the side effect is it kills the doctor because I think that's basically where we're at, right? Like maybe this is effective for a, for a small number of people, but the damage that it does to our field is immense. And that has to be part of the equation. And so, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and people conflate multiple issues sometimes when, when, when they're um, arguing for shock, they say stuff like, well, uh, just banning shock completely for everyone would uh, deny this very, very small percentage of people right to effective treatment. I don't think we're, I mean, certainly we were not saying shock needs to be banned. We were concerned about the violation of the peer review process for this, you know, in this particular circumstance. Yes. 
But but saying that that some people have a right to receive shock if it's done properly with medical oversight and all of these things, legal permission. You've tried a million treatments first and all that. Let's just say it was actually ethical to shock somebody at some point. Um, even then, that doesn't mean it needs to be on the stage at our most prestigious conference in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the, the, just because someone can have the treatment or should have the treatment does not mean that that's something that we can select through the peer or something that we have to select through the peer review process to include. Yeah. The, the, the stage at a conference is not just an open mic night. That it, it, it's kind of actually sacred ground that, that, you know, by peer reviewing these submissions, we're saying these submissions represent something great in our field that we, that we want to promote and that we want to literally give a microphone to. And, and, and that bar certainly hasn't been met by the shock submissions. At least not that I've ever seen. I've also read arguments that um, the behavior analysts, if, if shock is medically necessary, um, electroshock devices have been declared medical devices. And, and we're supposed to be behavior analysts. We shouldn't be using medical devices that if that is a needed treatment, that device is a medical device that should be used by medical professionals. And so I think these are just really important issues that our field needs to grapple with. And, and we just not only did, were we unsure if these submissions could meet that bar, um, <clears throat> I think the bigger issue for us personally, was just that um, the the usual process wasn't followed. Yeah, that seems to be like the crux of like in this conversation with both of you. That seems to be the point at which there's the there's the deepest concern. Is not like we we're certainly not willing to say that in every case we're just saying n- never use uh, shock because as John uh, as John said, like there, there could be instances in which that's appropriate to save an individual's life. Right. And like, we want to, we, we want to, we want to be mindful of that. However, the issue is that y'all felt like you just were like, you were bypassed in in the process and not just you, but like the process was very not trans. It just was not transparent. And there's a lot of question marks around like, well, how did this get here? So that's the situation, uh, that I think we, we find ourselves in. Yeah, and, and you know, it's worth highlighting a few other uh, ethical points too. One one thing that was a little bit of a turning point for me was just imagining um, if our military had caught, let's say, like the head of Al Qaeda terrorist network with plans to you know nuke New York City or something like that, and the CIA had this person in a holding cell, they would not be allowed to use that device, the GED device, to make that person talk. That would be illegal. It'd be a war crime or it'd be a crime against humanity, whatever. So, like, to save a million people's lives, it would be illegal to use it against a terrorist. But this one school is allowed to use it against children with developmental disabilities? Like, that, that there's something fundamentally just not okay about that. Right? <laughs> right? Um, and just physical pain. Like, using physical pain. That, that's, not, that's not who we are as a, as a field. I mean, from the very beginning of behavior analysis, Skinner was really clear. Our science is about creating a, a world that is as free from coercion as possible. It's, you know, it's not about applying really strong consequences to modify behavior. That's not what our science has ever been about. So, yeah, I don't know, just a couple more details. You know, another thing that we got to mention is um, a lot of folks like uh, Amy and I are getting a whole bunch of attention on social media right now that we never sought out, um, that we haven't been participating in at all. But... Uh, What's unfortunate about, uh, unfortunate about that is that autistic folks 
have been raising alarms about this for years, decades even. And, and their advocacy work at great threat, uh, per, you know, personal and financial threat to their own careers, their advocacy work has been going on forever. And, and we, we literally just resigned from one job. That's all. That's what we've done, you know? So I think it's really important to point out uh, that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think for me, especially, um, it was that activist work that brought the attention to my focus and made me go, huh, how, how does this process work? How is it supposed to work, the peer review process? And you know, um, the BACB and the and ABAI recently um, included stronger statements about ethics in the program um, call for program materials and things like that. And and so it was kind of you know our field's recent emphasis on ethics combined with activism that raised my awareness for these issues that that made me pause and think, wait a second, I can't just, you know, rubber stamp things here involving this really critical issue. This is something that we really need to examine. And I do want to be clear, John kind of alluded to this. Um, John and I did not post the letter on social media. We emailed the letter to the people who are listed as directly involved, either people we interacted with or the people who um, we were meant to oversee in this process who were cut out of the process, we felt like we had to explain to the area coordinators um, why we were going to be resigning. So, and we didn't share the, the letter. And we did, and actually, we didn't give permission to anybody else to share it either. So, right. You know, Thank you. That's a great point. We don't know who shared it. We actually don't know who leaked it. One of the one of the people, one of the recipients, leaked it to people on Facebook or activists or whatever. And you know, I can't blame activists for posting stuff on Facebook. That's what activists do. You yeah. Know? And it's hey, you know, we're it's a free speech, democratic society. <laughs> so like, uh, but but we we uh, we did not give anyone permission to do that. Um, so that's interesting. I, I don't know if there's much clarity around that, but. Whatever it's clear to us. One of the uh, one of the other questions that I would love to talk about, whether here or you know, we're, we're I'm planning on having uh, uh, more interviews with other individuals who have a unique perspective into this situation. Uh, but like one question I'd love to talk to y'all about, if you have uh, if you have the desire to to talk through it, is like really if 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 I'm honest with myself, like I'm the you know I'm let's say I'm your you know your average practitioner. And I meet with families, you know, weekly and, and we're talking and, and I, win, I winsomely defend the practice of ABA because families come to us with concerns like this, that we, that we, that we, you know, that we, uh, that we, we disagree with and we say, no, no, absolutely not. Like, that's not how we practice. And, and then these types of things happen. I like what I want to know from y'all's perspective is like, well, in this case, like what really are the alternatives? Because we've talked a little bit about if, you know, there, there, there might be instances where a learner has such severe or an individual has such severe challenging behavior that this saves their lives. But like, what are the alternatives if it's not electroshock? And, and again, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to talk with other um, individuals about this too, but I don't know if y'all have any thoughts on like, well, what, like the, the argument is like, oh no, this is the only option. But then I just have to wonder like, is it the only option? Did we try everything? At what point do you just say like, 
no, we didn't try everything or no, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not satisfied with the number of things that we tried before we resorted to this. Like that's still where my like personal and professional tension lies right now. It's like, well, what are we going to do instead? Yeah. So I can speak to that a little bit as the applied person on our team, Amy. Uh, um, you know, I, and I should say, I have substantial training in history and treating severe behavior, but I wouldn't say that that's my specialty uh, for the last 10 years at least. Um, so, so I think that's important to state that off the bat. And there definitely are people that you could talk to who are much more expert than Amy and I in treating the worst, severest form of behavior. Um, however, I did work at the, the, the Kennedy Krieger Institute early in my career. Um, and I did work with patients who were literally blind from self-injurious behavior. I worked with patients who were missing parts of their tongue from self-injurious behavior. I, I worked with patients who were covered their entire surface of their body with scar tissue from self-injurious behavior. Um, and so uh, I do have experience working with the, the worst possible uh, self-injury. Um, and I do remember well what procedures were done at Kennedy Krieger Institute, and I'm still friends with and colleagues with uh, many of the leaders there, some of whom I hope you get the opportunity to interview also. Um, and, you know, I just want to say uh, I'm not aware of any places like Kennedy Krieger Institute, Monroe Meyer Institute, um, you know, Marcus Institute, uh, Children's Seashore House, New England Center for Children, any of these other places that are really well known for top quality treatment of severe behavior and dealing with the worst possible cases of severe behavior. I'm not aware of any of them ever using shock or ever referring a patient out for shock. It could have happened. It's possible. I've never heard of it happening. Um, and so, uh, so that's, you know, something to consider. Um, and, and the narrative that's pushed by this one school that uses shock uh, as, as punishment is that the only other alternatives are chemical restraint or mechanical restraint. Now, at the level of each individual client, which is where we have our ethical responsibility to operate, you would have to make that decision at the level of each individual client with deep, rich information about that client and their behavior. So I'm not going to pretend like I know how to make that decision for those 50 people getting shocked at that school. I don't know those clients, so I don't know their history and I don't know their current circumstances. Um, but I can speak more generally to the narrative that the only alternatives are chemical restraint or manual restraint. I'm sorry, chemical restraint or mechanical restraint. And I'd say that chemical restraint and mechanical restraint are not part of what we do in behavior analysis. So if you're treating someone as a behavior analyst, you do not put them in mechanical restraint all day and you do not prescribe them chemical restraint. That's what medical doctors do uh, sometimes under some, some circumstances. In, in any case, it's not what we do. So that's not actually true, that that's the alternative procedures that we would be doing. So I think really what that's saying is if we could, if we couldn't shock the people who are saying that narrative are saying, if I can't shock this person, then I don't, I don't, I can't do anything else. I have nothing else that I can do with this person except for shock them. Now, again, if I don't know their client, I don't know. Right. Uh, <laughs> but that is kind of interesting. It, uh, it's not often that you hear a behavior analyst say, we literally can't do anything. Like the environment controls behavior. That's what influences behavior. Our job is to manipulate the environment. We literally can't do anything. The only environmental manipulation I can use is shock. It seems, uh, and given that nobody else does it, that, that narrative, um, while it could be true, maybe for one individual person uh, or some individual person in some circumstance, as a general narrative and justification for a, a general policy of using shock in an organization, it doesn't, uh, I don't think it holds water personally.
which speaks to the need for more transparency. That's, that's what you've been saying. Like we want more transparency into this process so that we can understand on the individual level, like what's happening. Um, I'd want, I'd want to know like before CSS was used, well, what were the strategies and tactics that, that they were using where they said like, no, this truly is like last resort, uh, intervention. Like I, I, that, those are questions I would love to know or have answers to. Yeah. Well, and, and people, you know, people do get chronic, uh, overuse of chemical and mechanical restraint. That's a real thing. Um, but that's not a result of behavior analysts working with them at a top quality behavior analytic treatment program. Behavior analysts don't put people in chemical and mechanical restraint forever. That's what happens when people are warehoused in institutions yeah. uh, and, and places where they don't have access to good quality treatment. So again, I'm not saying it would never be justified to put someone in chemical or mechanical restraint. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's not a reasonable part of a behavior analyst's even view of the universe <laughs> in terms of interacting with other human beings. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that one thing I want to make clear is I'm a basic scientist. I do experimental analysis of behavior. Um, but I have actually, as an undergraduate, seen severe cases of self-injury. I've seen people who couldn't see um, because they detached their own retinas and people who couldn't hear because they had burst their own eardrums and people who were covered head to toe in scar tissue and more football helmets with face masks because of eye poking. So um, even though I'm not a practitioner, I do have some idea of the cases that we are talking about um, because of my undergraduate experiences at the University of Florida um, in Brandon Wattis lab. So better than many people, I do at least know what the behavior is that we're talking about. And that was part of my decision making. And it's probably also worth noting that it's clear, I mean, there's plenty of evidence that um, shock as punishment is not only used for severe, life-threatening, self-injurious behavior. Um, there's plenty of evidence from, and I'm not getting into hearsay on Facebook, but there's plenty of evidence from the uh, Food and Drug Administration's report um, and from the UN report that shock was used as punishment for other behaviors, too, that are not severe. And, and you know, things like... Um, uh, you know, non-compliance or standing up when you're not supposed to, or apparently there's even a case of like improper menstrual care or something like that. Like, you know, stuff that's like, clearly not justified. Um, and so, you know, I guess the argument there is maybe those non-destructive behaviors are part of some response class that includes really severe behaviors. So you have to just shock everything in the response class. And actually, Amy, you probably know the basic science better than me on this, but um, I, I don't even think that makes a whole lot of sense. It sure seems like you could, you, if you're going to punish, you punish the topographies that you want to go away, and, and, and you don't have to punish every other topography that has the same function. If that was true, then you'd have to pu punish functional communication too, right? If it's functionally equivalent. So that doesn't, right? It's obviously not the case. So uh, that, that too also really doesn't hold water. Yeah. And I, there's something that um, I want to say about kind of wrapping back around to the approach um, to grappling with these issues, because these are really difficult issues where people have a, you know, emotional response in many cases. Um, but one thing was when we brought up that we didn't feel like it was likely that we would be accepting these and we wanted to let ABA, I know um, we wanted to have a conversation about that. Um, you know, we were told, well, you you can't reject these because ABAI doesn't have an official um, position on 
the use of CSS, I suggested that, okay, let's just call a moratorium on these presentations until ABAI can work out a position statement. So it, it wasn't the case. I want to be clear that John and I just said, absolutely, look, we're not going to accept these under any circumstances. There's nothing you can do. We don't want to talk about it. It was not like that at all. It was like, hey, let's have a conversation about this difficult topic. We don't feel like we can accept them. We want to proactively approach you um, about how to deal with this. And then when we were told that that wasn't an option, before the submissions had been reviewed, we were told they couldn't be rejected, which is a difficult part of the process for sure that that happened. But even then we were willing to say, you know, okay, are there alternatives to, um, to what we're suggesting is, could we just have a moratorium until you're able to get an official position? Right. It sounds like y'all did um, everything you could at least to really evoke uh, dialogue, like to just spark conversation so that y'all could, uh, y'all could really do your jobs. Like that's, that's what I'm hearing also is that you, you had a job to do and you were trying to do your jobs. You were asking good questions. You were soliciting feedback. You were, you were doing everything you could to, uh, to, to create the environment that would allow everyone to make good decisions, right? Like to go through the peer review process and to make good decisions about the presentations that were included or not included. And, uh, and so, you know, I think people like me certainly appreciate all the work that y'all did uh, and the stand that you took to, um, you know, to, I think, be ethical behavior analysts that are good examples for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, we certainly tried, and, and I want to be clear also, I'm not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect communicator. Um, you know, I, I, maybe there are <clears throat> things that we could have done better, and, and there's another side to the story. Um, I think the thing that was ultimately just really difficult was um, the inability to communicate on the issues, to engage and communicate on it. I agree. Well, uh, in the spirit of, of uh, you know, respecting y'all's time, is there anything else that you'd love to or like to talk about? Um, uh, perhaps like I'm going to do a number of uh, other interviews, hopefully, and, and maybe we can circle back if that would be appropriate. But is there anything else that you guys would like to kind of go through while we're together? Uh, I'll make one little comment. Um, if there's any autistic folks uh, watching this, I just want you to hear from us that there are behavior analysts who are listening. Uh, we care about your input. We appreciate your input, uh, even even when it's really uh, uh, condemning. And we want to hear what you have to say. So keep speaking up. Yeah, I think just like John said, and, and just giving credit to the people who, you know, I can't even remember exactly all the posts I saw or whatever that started to raise my awareness on this issue. Um, and just to thank organizations um, like WIBA and um, people like Nasia Cervencioni Ulezi and Shaping Leaders. Um, I think it's, you know, that whole context including activism um, by autistic people that uh, that led to this decision that raised our awareness and, and made it so that we just felt like we needed to say something. Yeah. I got an email from an autistic person today and 
basically alluded to the same thing that John did. It's like, well, we've been saying these things for a long time. And that, that felt really discouraging to me. Like, oh, you, like y'all have been saying these things, but we've not done a very good job listening. So um, I'm hoping to have an autistic person uh, inter- like on an interview in the next couple of days. So that's certainly my goal. And um, with John's help, I, I think we, we might be able to accomplish that. So yeah appreciate that and i hope that it's clear uh that we are not pretending like we um are are better or more advanced in some way we we were part of the problem and that's what we noticed is by saying nothing and doing nothing we're part of the problem and so we're not willing to be part of the problem anymore we need to move forward as a field yeah Um, and so we're um yeah we're, we're trying to do this from a place of humility and values not you know holier than thou or something like that yeah i think that's a great point and i think that you know, these issues have been with our science since the very beginning. There there have been ethical issues that we today would recognize as horrendous in the founding of our science. And as we continue to grow and learn and think about these issues, you know, there are these things that have carried through our science that are part of it that are still there. And I think at some point um, we have to just examine these things, take a hard look at these really difficult issues. Um, and in some cases, just like John said, just say like, I'm not going to be part of this issue anymore. I'm not going to contribute to it anymore. And it's going to take folks, uh, doing some things that are not comfortable. I mean, it certainly wasn't comfortable for Amy and I to resign from that job. We, we had a great deal of respect for the process and for the institution of ABAI and for all these big shots that we were reporting to in, in those roles. And, and, we still just had to make a tough decision. Yeah, I, I really want to echo that, that um, that we have a great deal of respect for ABAI and the people involved. Um, and we hope that that this um, that this issue, you know, ABAI has developed a task force. They, they have a comment line, basically, where you can give them input on these issues, you know, um, looking at uh, the response, there has been a response and acknowledgement that this is a controversial issue. And um, so I think just all of us trying our best to act with kindness and um, maybe it sounds goofy, but like to act out of love, you know, for each other and, and love for our field and for the incredible positive work that people do. Um, and and try to move forward this through this awkward, awful, uncomfortable phase together. Yeah, and that we're we're not going to um, get over the sins of our past, if you will, um, until we reckon with them, until we accept them, and and we take responsibility and ownership. You know, as as a field. Um, I mean, I just did a little Google on Lovos and shock this morning. And in about a, a microsecond, found an article, peer-reviewed article from 1965 on using shock to shape social approach behavior in kids with autism. That's part of our science. It'll be forever in our, in our peer-reviewed legacy, peer-reviewed journal legacy in our science. And so we need to reckon with that. It's not somebody else's job to reckon with that. It's our job as a field. And we have the opportunity right now. By just speaking up. I think it's very easy for us as moderns to look back at the past with a degree of like chronological snobbery, like, oh, well, that was 40, 50 years ago. We would never do that. 
but then like here we are, right? We're we're still we're still dealing with this. So that like I think it's it's really important that like the time is now. We have choices. We have decisions. Um, and so I, I continue to just appreciate y'all's time and the courage that you had to like do what you did. And I, I can only imagine that it wasn't easy. Uh, and I, I certainly appreciate y'all talking with uh, with me today. So uh, again, Amy, John, I really appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. All right. It's my pleasure.